You're listening to Red Nation Online. You're listening to the Paul James and Soccer Podcast. Commentary and analysis by Paul James, former Canadian soccer player, television analyst, coach, and member of the Canadian Soccer Hall of Fame. Well, here we are with another episode of the Paul James on Soccer podcast, and it was another downer of a week in Canadian soccer at both the club and country levels. Let's kick things off by talking about the FIFA Women's World Cup. Canada's run at the tournament ended with another poor performance in a loss to Nigeria. Given that all of the reports leading up to that match stated that the Canadian team was emotionally wounded and psychologically battered from their loss to France, should we take much of significance from the team's poor performance against Nigeria? Well, Steve, I think that uh, whenever you're in a World, uh, World Cup, you're in a World Championship, uh, every game should be uh, as important as the next one. I mean, if you're, if you're knocked out, you still play for pride, you're still uh, in front of a global audience. I can't see where that, um, that should be any um, excuse or any reason for, for not performing. Um, you know, it was very interesting. Uh, I just talked about today, just uh, an hour ago, just finished watching um, uh, the U.S. game. Uh, you know, it was against Brazil, which is absolutely unbelievable. And and, and what, what I looked at when I watched the States, I know that it ranked number one in, in the world in Brazil, so it was a top-flight game. But uh, it was just unbelievable. I mean, they really, truly are, you know, the, the, the closest I've seen to being the complete team. And, uh, you know, it's very interesting now comparing our Canadian team that in a one-off game has obviously beaten the States to win the CONCACAF. It doesn't mean we're on the same level. But uh, if ever there was, uh, there was a team that I saw in this tournament, on, on the day, it was the U.S. team that uh, really indicates, uh, at, at least at this moment in time under Carolina Maracci, what we saw in this World Cup tournament, of, um, of how far and how poor we were in this tournament is when you compare them to the United States. Because the United States are a well-balanced team. They play uh, a little bit of uh, direct play when, it, when needed to, and they can do it. Like they have quality passes forward. They penetrate at the right moments. The, the final goal was absolutely unbelievable. It's a great long ball cross to the far post, um, and one back uh, finished it in a terrific way. And then when the m- moments are that they can build up play, uh, they do. You know, if it's on to play in midfield, they, they're comfortable, they have composure on the ball. And they're able to uh, to deal with that well. So, <clears throat> and on top of it, to be able to come back as the commentator, the commentator was absolutely fantastic talking about the uh, spirit and never never give in, uh, you know, attitude and mentality that we saw a year ago with Landon Donovan with the men's team demonstrating with Bob Bradley the same thing. And yet in Canada we can't replicate that, and we're always looking for answers. And, and your question there, Steve, is a tough one. I mean, it, it, it's a fair one. I think you're right. You know, everybody's looking for answers, and it's like uh, our players are feeling sorry for themselves a little bit, and and uh, they love the coach, and it's you know, it's like Mary Poppins stuff. It's uh, it it really is, and and it it identifies that in this country, we've got to give ourselves a shake and really understand, you know, where we're at in um, in, in the global scheme of things, and we we are weak mentality. You know, we're very insecure soccer nation. We're very insecure about critique and criticism that's pointed 
and uh, everybody wants the perfect situation. You know, we got Stephen Hart was a player's choice to be hired on the men's team. There was, uh, you know, good reasons for not hiring Stephen Hart. You know, based on the fact that he hadn't been successful. We we didn't like Evan Pellerud, who was our most successful women's coach by an almighty chasm. Now I don't see any female players coming out and saying things positive about Evan Pellerud. It's only negative criticism. You know. So, you know, and, and I've known Evan, and I worked with Evan, so let, let's say the, the criteria I'd have on, on Evan, go back to four years ago in the Australia game when Canada played. If they win, they go through in their quarterfinals. Another great success it would have been. You know, Christine Sinclair scores with like a minute to go. Canada's 2-1 up. They're just about into the, into the uh, quarterfinal. And then Australia go down, and Canada, you know, to attack. And Canada, with two minutes left, had the, the opportunity they played the ball into Diana Matheson, and she just totally uh, uh, released the ball. She, she had a great opportunity to keep the ball, composure, and play out the uh, play out the game and play out the time. But because of the over directness of Evan Pellerud, she panicked and didn't have the composure. So it's that fine moment, it's that period, and it's that uh, incident that highlights to me just the extra dimension that Evan needed to add to the Canadian women's program when he was here. It was just a bit better link-up play in the midfield. But everything else that Evan taught as far as penetrating passes, getting the ball forward early, looking for that uh, space in behind if you can, the way that they defended, I thought that their the fitness standards, the professionalism of the program, I thought was terrific. So I don't really, and the mentality was good because they're always competitive. But Carolina Maracci, I think, has brought some things to, to the program. But on the demonstration of this World Cup, it was it is very poor, and we seem to have a very weak mentality. And to be honest, it's not helped. It's not helped in, in, in areas of the media, where we're looking for, uh, you know, to use the quotes of, uh, of analysts on the TV, is that uh, it's a systemic uh, problem in this country. That has nothing to do. It has nothing to do with the performance of Canada and Carolina Marachi's performance in this tournament. Uh, you know, so because it, changing any kind of system things, but I'd have an issue with anyway, but changing system things is going to take, you know, a generation almost. And what's going to happen if Carolina Maracci goes into the, qualifies the team to the Olympics and gets to the Olympics and gets them on the medal and gets them on the podium? Is that because we've changed our, our system? No, it's because she's performed well as a coach in that tournament. And we have to critique things as they are and not brush things under the carpet because there's an agenda or because it's opportunistic for somebody to, to buffer their own argument for why to bring Carolina Maracci in the first place. Those are the disappointment things. And, and where it's relevant, uh, Steve, is because you talk about the emotion and the, the psychological components of the players that were all down and that's what it was. For me, I looked at that, that game and I thought there was something amiss. I thought they underperformed for sure and what they normally would have. It's almost like you know, they lost faith in the coach or the coach lost faith in the players. I'm not there, I'm not privy to what goes on, but there seemed to be something something amiss, and I, and I think there needs to, it needs to be judged uh, that way. We need to be stronger. We need to be like we are in the rest of the world and call it as it is and not look for, for other reasons. You know, the thing about the uh, change in an Oakville soccer club now, all of a sudden, if I was an academy coach, an entrepreneur academy coach, or if I was a provincial association, or if I was other clubs around the country, I would be I, I would be annoyed um, about the way that Oakville Soccer Club are going about their business all of a sudden. Like they they all of a sudden have found uh, you know they've had an epiphany about what needs to happen in our country. You know since 1986 when Canada went to Mexico and come back, 
there's been an improvement in the technical ability of our players. There definitely has. There's a big difference when you I look at playing in the old Canadian Soccer League and now. And that's a credit to the efforts that have been put in place around the country and the long-term player development program that, uh, that the people are pitching the CSA have brought into is Tony Waiters. Tony Waiters was the head coach of, uh, of our World Cup team in 1986. Nobody seems to refer to him, but he's the one that seems to come up and, and, uh, and produce these things. It's not an original thought to turn around and to say that we, are, we, we need to be technically better. Yes, we need to be technically better, but we are from 86. We've been gradually improving. But to be able to say that that's going to be the difference to make us go out and win World Cup games is totally naive. You know, uh, let's look at the States today. The States played, in my opinion, is exactly what you need to do. They were tough. They were strong. They were physical. They were uh, terrific athletes, which is what we are now criticizing about Canada and saying, well, Canada shouldn't, uh, you know, we, we're too much that way. No, we're not, because the United States have that. But they play a brand of football that is, that is realistic. It's, they play when it's on and link up into the midfield, which would be my one criticism of Evan. That's what he needed to do. Didn't you over, don't overplay. And the states are able to play the ball. When they play the ball direct and they play it long, they play quality. When Canada goes to play the ball long and direct, they can't play longer passes. Because somewhere in our, in our development system, we, 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 uh, we sell that short. We don't develop that part. You know, it, international and, and developing players and young players have to be doing everything. They have to play short, long, they have to be comfortable on the ball. They have to be able to do all those technical skills. And to finish off this point, because I know it's long, Steve, as far as, uh, as that, uh, that question. You know, I, I go back again, and I've mentioned it somewhere. I've mentioned it in, in talks maybe uh, over my coaching career. But in 1995 World Cup, when the United States uh, lost to Norway, who, by the way, ironically, Evan Pellerud was the coach, and, Evan, and uh, Anson Durant, at the end of that uh, World Cup, a couple of years later, or a year later, I should say, uh, wrote a paper, wrote an incredible paper, and I remember reading it, and then I actually went to one of his uh, lectures on it. And he actually said that what they learned from that World Cup was that when they lost to Norway, it was because Norway had high-pressured them all over the place, and it forced them had forced them into situations where if they tried to play out of the back, they were going to give it up, and they did. And he said, and so when we tried to go direct and we tried to go long, we couldn't because we didn't have the techniques in place. We couldn't play the ball over 30 yards. If we played over 30 yards, we'd go out to touch. And he says, there's nothing we could do. So it changed our ideology. It changed our mindset that was immature because all we did is try to play one way. And, uh, and, so, and then they developed the other parts of their game, like being able to play... When you, when you talk about passing the ball, it's not about passing it with the outside of your foot over five yards. Yes, you have to do that. It's not about a good first touch. It's about everything. It's about being able to curl the ball. It's about being able to play in deep crosses like the States did today for a fantastic winner. It's about being able to play a 40-yard ball into space when that space opens up because it's so difficult to get into the back space or penetrate that final third so that when somebody gives you, when, when a team is unbalanced and they give you that split second to be able to take advantage of it. You have to, but we can't in Canada because we are all over the place in terms of how we address our development and how we address our issues, and we really need to get it right. You know, this, the, the performance of Canada in this World Cup has been poor. It's been a poor coaching performance. Karina Marachi, for all what she did prior to coming here, is fair enough, we recognize that. I thought they were competitive in the first half against Germany. You know, they, they, they toughened that out in a very difficult environment. But overall, it was a 
performance, and we have to address that issue for what it is, not brush it under the mat and say we're not going to throw her under the bus or whatever you want to talk about. It's not about uh, the systemic things that go on in our country. This is about a coach underperforming and players underperforming to have a, over 100 international caps. Great investment by the CSA. I thought Peter Montopoli was terrific. I thought he was a strong leader when he came out and, uh, and made people accountable, made the coaching staff and made the coaching program of the women's program. They, as you said, the CSA gave them everything. You know, so that he didn't go out, he didn't go to the extreme, didn't say that he was going to fight, said he's going to support them, that they're expecting results. And I think that's strong leadership from the CSA, and they get a lot of criticism. He also recognized the fact that they, the Canada have qualified for three out of six world championships when no, no other teams, uh, or, or six or seven teams around the world have done that. But that's it, we're in that six. And that's right, the CSA should come out when they do good things and achieve things. They should say that. I respect Peter Montopoli very much for doing that. But we need to wake up in other areas, I think. We, we go down cul-de-sacs looking for, for reasons. It's simple. is that you know, Caroline Marachi underperformed bottom line. The general response from Marachi to the criticism that she re- has received has been along the lines that the CSA has never been able to meet all of her requirements and that the Canadian players do not have a league of their own to play in. Um, it's obviously a very complex situation, but I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you if you think Marache is the right person to lead Canada to the 2015 World Cup, where we'll no doubt want to have a better performance as the tournament hosts. Yeah, I, and I would say, after on this tournament, I'd say no, but she's going to get the chance to be able to correct that by, first of all, qualifying for the Olympics and then getting into at least the quarterfinals with the Olympics. I think if that happens and there's good spirit, you know, with uh, with how she does that, then I would say, you know, fair enough. Then you know, she'd have a reason to be pitched. But unless she turns around and, and does something significant, like uh, you know, first of all, if she didn't qualify, she should be fired for sure in, in, in the Olympics. We're, we're qualifying home in January. You've got everything together, ready for that. To you know, two teams go through. We should be able to achieve that. She should be able to do it. And if she does, she still has to go there and, um, and achieve something after this dismal performance. But aside from that, if she doesn't do that, then we should move on and get something else. It's critical. Canada on the women's side, you know, does well. And, and here's my thing with the, the points that you made before that. Again, you know, I, I was impressed with, with Caroline Maracci after she dealt with the Germany game. But as it went on, and I have to say this, Brenda Irvin on, on CBC after the, uh, the, the, the France game, I believe it was, France or the Nigeria game, or just prior to the Nigeria game, did a great interview, and was, and that's how you need to be, and that's how we need to be in Canada. She was very pointed and very direct, and went with almost went after Marachi with uh, wanting explanations, and um, and that was good. But Marachi handled it in a little bit of a way of um, of looking for excuses. The, the bottom line is never going to be a professional women's league. We already have sort of a semi-professional with with the W League. I think that is decent and that's good. And let's not, you know, let's not forget that the NCAA model, the collegiate system in the United States on the women's side, is, the, is still today the most sophisticated development model in women's football on the globe, period. You have some professional leagues around the world, but it still can't match over the four-year period the players are in that, the, uh, the development that those players get at a crucial, crucial time. The competitiveness of that NCAA system on the women's side is, is, uh, is terrific. And we've had, you know, the majority of our players on any given day are in that system and have been in that system. So there are no excuses. You can't make and start saying and start doing things because there's an agenda and there's, a, there's something hidden underneath. And Mirachi there is not going to fool the, 
uh, the knowledgeable uh, people out there. And, and again, I, I mean, I feel for, in, in terms of this whole process of, of the, the attention that's been given to our poor performance, you know, I, the people I feel for are people like um, uh, Holger Osiak, um, Evan Pellerud, uh, Dale Mitchell, uh, you know, the, the coaches that have been out there and worked for this and, went, and they have taken an absolute pounding. And now all of a sudden, you know, Stephen Hart takes very little criticism. And it's not, this is not a witch hunt for Stephen Hart. Again, I, I repeat, I like Stephen Hart and I'm, and I'm, I'm pulling for him. But you have to say it as it is or we're never going to get anywhere. It's ridiculous. So those are the people I feel sorry for, along with the fact that now all of a sudden we got a, again, almost, uh, you know, Oakville Soccer Club is going to lead the way into, uh, into this new, new era of development when, when people have been in the trenches. Now, Paul Varian is not a soccer guy, and he's never been in the trenches. They have a technical director who's never coached before in his life. And therefore, you've not been in the trenches. You don't know what you're dealing with as far as what it is to get players to come out six times a week. You're never going to get them out. And that's what you need to do. And Japan gave you an example of how you do that. Japan showed you what you can do with, uh, with uh, that kind of commitment. But it's a cultural thing. In our country, we have very, very difficult system where we're trying to get the technical golden years of coaching, for sure. That's not a new thing. We've known that for years. But to be able to get players to do it on their own, day in, day out, is an absolute massive uh, um, uh, obstacle that we have to overcome, and it's very, very difficult. And that's the problem we have. So it's somewhere in between. Evan Pellerud was not too far off. There's a balance between Evan and, uh, and the house Spain play. But uh, he was closer than, um, than, uh, than people gave him credit for, this, uh, that's for sure. Let's move on to the MLS and talk about Toronto FC. TFC started off their week with a brutal 5-0 loss to the New York Red Bulls. Outside of a decent start on the road in the first 15-20 to 20 minutes, that match got ugly quickly and really showed the quality divide between Toronto and New York. What was your assessment of that match? <laughs> yeah, uh, that was, uh, I like the word brutal. Um, I think that was uh, is appropriate for that game. And somewhere along our, uh, the line, Steve, we've talked about and we've mentioned that because of the system that Aaron Vincer plays and he doesn't move away from it, that along the way somewhere they're going to get thumped and they're going to get thumped a few times. Vancouver haven't been thumped like that because of the way that they go about their business, the way that Aaron Vincer goes about his business. You know, you're going to get in environments like that where you, you, you're down numbers because you have some injuries. I can't believe Toronto FC must have the worst injury list league. And I don't think it's all because of uh, um, because there are injuries that can't be overcome. I think there's a mentality issue somewhere. There's a weakness somewhere. Or, or maybe it's the way that they, uh, they cater and they're, and they're coddling a little bit too much. But it's unbelievable how many players are injured, and, and, how, and most of them are Canadian. Um, but what, what I would say on that, therefore, is that it's how he goes about his business. Aaron Vinter and and he got they got caught as a team. First of all, Eckersley at the back was responsible for two of the goals, and then um, Ty Harden was responsible for responsible for the other two. So you know we talked about last week, and um, Eckersley's done a great job, did a great job against Vancouver, and he's sort of been in uh, in bits and pieces. He's still terrific there as a as a, a centre back. Like he comes out, he reads the play well. He's athletic. He's quick. He's passionate. He's a little bit, uh, a little bit too emotional at times. You can see it, and he he, he, uh, he wears his heart on his sleeve, and he and he reacts, he overreacts. He's got to calm down, that's for sure. But on that first goal, 
he left Henri, you know, and it's, it's, you know, you have empathy for him because he's not a natural. He was, he was defending like a fullback going in to try and cover uh, Ty Harden when he, he, you don't do that. When the ball goes wide, you open up, you look at your man because you, you want to know who play, which player you're marking, and you look at the ball and you do both of those things, not one exclusively. He did one, and it was look at the ball, and then he moved away from Henri. So it, it was a, a bad mistake. He made a bad, bad mistake later on in the game when he uh, didn't close the ball down. So there was those instances with certain players, and then um, and then it was uh, a, a transition thing. You know, the the, the in between defending and attacking that period of 5, 10, 15, 20 seconds, you know, Toronto FC got absolutely stretched. They weren't compact at all, and they should have recognized that. This is where I'd have the issue with Aaron Vinter. My question marks would be, I mean, if if you're in those situations, you know, you have to know going in that we're behind the eight ball, and we need to take a defensive posture here to have any chance of getting a result. You know, for me, coaching is about is definitely having a system, having the players in the right slots. Clearly, he knows about the quality. They don't have the quality. But every game you go in, you try and win. And, and when you go into every game, you have to make an assessment. You have to make an assessment, right, who on paper is the, be- is, is the better team? And, and is it a big margin between who's better than the other? And if you go in, on paper and you look at Toronto FC, you look at New York, I would have said, yes, oh, my gosh, they are better than this, and there's one almighty chasm on this particular day that they're better than this. So you have to go in with a different kind of tactical plan, you know, in my opinion. And, um, you know, so I think it's a shared responsibility. I have to say this with Aaron Vince. I liked him um, at the end of the game. I thought he was calm. I thought he was, uh, took it in his stride. And it was so important because at the end of the day, if, at that point of the season, if you lose 1-0 or 5-0, you know, it was always going to be a difficult game going into New York, like it was going into Houston. So he did well to keep things balanced, and then um, we'll talk about the Houston game in a minute. Toronto's second match of the week was a weekend fixture in Texas against the Houston Dynamo that ended up as another disappointing loss. Alan Gordon returned to the lineup, but against Houston it didn't make any difference as the offense didn't create any chances, and defensively the team was poor as well. What did you make of Toronto FC's performance against the Dynamo? Uh, well, I think, um, Steve, first of all, I would say that um, Alan Gordon uh, did make a difference, um, you know, to be fair to him and Jacob Peterson, the same thing, and Tony Tuchani in the uh, in the midfield. You know, I, it, it doesn't always mean, I mean, they didn't score uh, any goals and they didn't really create a lot of chances, but he was still a presence up front, you know, with um, Martina against New York, I clearly could see, or we could clearly see that um, he's not an out-and-out central striker. It's just not a good fit. So, um, you know, Alan Gordon back in the lineup at least makes the team more balanced. Um, and uh, and you have a target player, and I thought he battled with uh, Andrew Hano, you know, well. Um, I was impressed with Andrew Hano, to be honest. I thought he did a really good job. He's got a great temperament. But, um, you know, at the same time with uh, TFC in that game, there was, um, you know, still the same kind of issues. You know, at the back, unfortunately, and um, it, it, only this time it was more to do with uh, with the transition of uh, losing the ball in the attacking third and then getting caught. You know, at the back because you're you're man on man, and we couldn't quite see from the camera angles because the camera angles got it completely wrong. But just uh, my instinct, you know, could tell that they're on the wrong side of the player, or they got caught ball watching, or they got caught you know, too tight to the player and the, the through ball caught them. 
I thought Eccles Lee got caught on that on the one two Borman got caught. Very interesting that uh, Borman came off uh, soon after that and um you know, listening to, to Vinter after the game, I could tell he was edgy. He was edgy about it, he was disappointed with the results, but um, I actually thought it was a, it was a more competitive um, performance. Now, clearly, you know, you can see the scoreline is different to the New York 2-0 and 5-0, but, but um, you know, overall they look sturdier and more competitive on a physical level and technical level uh, against Houston, bottom line. You know, it's still a tough environment to go in. You got the humidity, you got all those things. Um, but uh, it it was it was the issues at the back again that they got uh, caught out. One player who rightfully looked exasperated in the two losses was keeper Stefan Fry. It's been a rough season for Fry, who is one of the top keepers in the MLS, but who has faced far and away the most shots in the league. The one time I have seen him very happy and almost boyishly excited. This year was when I spoke to him about Toronto's signings of Torsten Frings and Danny Covermans. We've heard a lot about the inevitability of Fry heading to Europe, and I'm wondering how important you think Toronto's signings of two DPs are in keeping their star keeper happy. Yeah, I think so. I think uh, definitely. I feel for uh, Stefan Fry. I think uh, all the supporters would. I mean, he um, he clearly has got a you know, really great attitude and a great uh, approach, good character. He's uh, keeping positive. Because uh, I can't, I've never been a goalkeeper, and um, you know, I, I can't imagine what they would go through. You know, just uh, game in, game out, when they're conceding goals, and particularly when you're a very good goalkeeper. You know, it's um, it would it's one thing to be a defender or, or a team to concede uh, five goals, but imagine being a goalkeeper. I mean, you really do uh, truly have to have uh, an unbelievable mentality. I remember Craig Forrest in uh, 2000 in the Gold Cup. I mean, it was uh, there were, you know, first of all, we won a gold, a coin toss, toss in that um, uh, in that tournament, and and the other significant factor was was Craig Forrest. He was absolutely unbelievable in that Gold mm. Cup tournament back in 2000. And uh, I just thought about you know just the mentality that he would have, and it's the same with Stephen Fry. I mean, you have to be so tough. You have to be well balanced, and you have to somehow keep positive. But um, he's been tested for sure. But he's done a good job. He's still been uh, uh, making up some great saves. And I would say that um, yeah, he would be happy. But I think also the club and his teammates, just knowing that the sort of cavalry is arriving in uh, in the two players, and um, you know, hopefully it will uh, it will make a difference. I mean, what concerns me if if they come in and they they just don't do the job that's expected of them. Which other uh, Lauren Robert, for example, uh, came in and wasn't good. Mister came in and wasn't good. If these two come in, don't have an impact, then I think TFC are, are really going to be uh, be struggling for for the rest of the season and then you know into next year. So um, it really is uh, the time for TFC to report to top quality players in. I think they've done that. But clearly, you could see that Aaron Vinter at the post game was um, was agitated, and you can see he's competitive. And I think it's good that he shows that emotion because um, you know it's important. He's still balanced. He's still professional. Um, he doesn't um, um, shirk responsibility. I think he's uh, he's good. So hopefully that works out for them, and Stefan Fry can um, start getting some clean sheets again. As already mentioned, Alan Gordon returned from injury against Houston, as did Jacob Peterson. Tony Chani returned to fitness a couple of matches ago, and Julian de Guzman and Maicon Santos don't look to be uh, too far off from returning to the lineup. July 20th against FC Dallas will be the first match in which Frings and Covermans will be available for selection. 
and Winter will actually have a fairly significant number of options to choose from up front and in the middle of the pitch. If you were Aaron Winter, who would you select as your top three forwards and your three midfielders, and how would you have them line up on the pitch? Well, that's, yeah, I mean, that's a tricky one. And, I, you know, going on, um, I can only go on what I see. You know, in games, I don't uh, observe and know what goes on in training. So uh, there are a number of components. I think some of the team, um, the team list that he's presented throughout this season indicates that things go on in training that he sees in training as opposed to games, because some players at times have been a surprise, but have actually done well in the positions he's put them in. So, you know, when you coach and you coach in that environment, it really is about how players are in training, how they fit into what you want with the system. And uh, and then you evaluate uh, in the um, in the games and matches, obviously. But just you know, as a um, as a guess, as a as a, an observer of what the two players would be like coming in, um, and then what I've seen so far this season, I would say that the three up top will be um, Kilvermans and, and Alan Gordon, and then Platter on um, on the left side. So. You know, I think the good thing about uh, Kuhlmans and, and Alan Gordon is that they can both switch. You know, they could, uh, in fact, all three of those players could um, could uh, switch the roles of um, of where they play up top, which would be a little bit like total football. I mean, Plasso will be a bit of an issue. He won't be able to go central, but he could go on the other side. I think you could also have uh, Martina. You've got Santos. So if you had Santos and Mar- Martina along with, um, you know, Alan Gordon and Kuhlmans, you could pick any one of those three and put them up front and and uh, and into into interchange with uh, with them. So I, I would say though that uh, based on performance, Platter should be in there up top because he's got the pace and he's got that uh, you know very direct uh, approach when he, he dribbles. And then Kuvermans and Alan Gordon in the middle of the park. You're going to have again when you have three in the middle. You play four three three. It really is what you do with those three in terms of the triangle. Do you play three? flat across and if that's the case uh, things would be in the middle of the park with uh, you know I would say Tony Ciccani would be um, would be the one and really interesting on, on who is who is the other one I mean I think the the uh, the, the option to go with the Guzman is, is certainly there he's a DTP player but um, you know really hasn't uh, produced that would necessarily you would say that um, he would be in my start and um Lineup, for example, I would probably go with Torsten Frings, Tony Ciccani as the two holding midfield players, and then play any one of a number of players with uh, Santos or even um, Martina. I thought did a decent job in that role against Houston as being that supporting attacking midfield player. And of course, obviously, you could use uh, De Guzman. But right now, I would uh, I would probably look at. Um, I think De Guzman. In, my instinct is, you know, when he talks about uh, trades, he's not going to be able to trade him. I think he'll stay to the end of the season. But unless Julian comes in and does something significant, I've said it before. I think he's on his way, and I think he might, um, you know, rotate some other players and some other options in that uh, in that midfield. I, I have to say, I thought um, uh, Sturgis has done a good job since. Um, since he settled into the city of Toronto, I think he's done a decent job. And I have to say, where you know credits where, where credit credit is due, um, Danny Gargan has done um, has done a, a, an okay, decent job at, uh, as a right fullback. Technically, he's improved. He's got better. He's playing simple. He looks more composed, and that's definitely a reflection of the uh, of the coaching day to day coaching environment of Aaron Vinter. 
But um, you know, it's a defensive thing again. Maybe he struggles a little bit there, but um, it's definitely been an improvement. So I think we need to acknowledge that um, along the way. Looking at the back line, how important is it for Aaron Vinter to uh, not rest on those two players and and really bring in another central defender during this transfer window um, in the short term, especially given that uh, Eckersley is going to be out with a suspension for a game now as well? Yeah, I think it's it's critical. I think they really, really know, and they, they have to get another defender in. I mean, to be honest, based on what I've seen, I mean, without um, being too unfair, I thought uh, Ty Harden has, has really struggled of, of late, and um, I've never quite seen him as being quite as poor as what he's been in the last few games, probably a confidence issue. But in either event, when he talks about quality, Aaron Binter in the post-game uh, uh, press conference, he... Um, He's absolutely right. He knows the, the, the pedigreed as far as um, knowing what it takes as far as the quality of player, and they know they just don't have it, and particularly at the back. I just don't think one player is going to do it. You know, the alarming thing is, as I, as I have said before, is the, uh, is the issue with um, how many injuries they've had. And, and for there to be no Canadian players on the field of play, it's a real, you know, indictment of um, of what our system is able to produce. I mean, we just don't have the numbers, and it's it's one thing or the other. You know, I watched again going back to the U.S. women's team. Watching the U.S. women's team, they look complete. They look the most complete team I've seen in terms of technical ability, tactical awareness, athleticism, physical power and strength, and great mentality that clearly shone through to me over the last few games that I've watched the states. Whereas, uh, you know, you look at Canadian players in, in the MLS right now, whether it's Terry Dunfield out in Vancouver, whether it's, it's Julian de Guzman here, whether it's Nana Atacora, whether it's, uh, you know, um, Daniel Henry. To be fair to him, he's very young, so no problem. But there's, oh, there's flaws. And it's, it's looking like there's one or two or three flaws coming, coming with our Canadian players. I mean, so, you know, you have to hold, uh, hold your head up and, and we have to, to say that uh, you know we have to recognize those moments and coaches that come in here that are dealing with Canadian players there always seems to be issues and if it's not their ability on the field it's their, their attitude or mentality and I know Aaron Vince has said and I've mentioned it before on a podcast uh, two months ago he said you know somebody questioned him about players and mentality he said well hold on he says the, the three main, main problems I have is Nana Atikor, Adrian Khan and, and Dwayne DiRosario you know, and it really is alarming. I think we need to we need to read that writing um, that uh, on the wall that says that uh, where everyone's saying you know being positive about what we what we have. Well, we we we've got to also know that there's some real negative aspects. You know, under 20 teams haven't qualified for the last two rounds. There's going to be a gap, and we're not getting those Canadian players to come through in the MLS teams right now. That, um, that we had hoped at the beginning. This is the fifth year for uh, Toronto FC. So, um, you know, for the, for the people in the grassroots level and for, for Toronto FC with their academies, they've got to get that right. There's no doubt because that's got to change in the next five to ten years. Like Toronto FC, it was also a dire week for the Vancouver Whitecaps, who also lost twice, while at the same time not being blown out in a match to the same degree that Toronto uh, was against New York. On Wednesday night, missing Hasley, Chimento, and Demerit due to injury, the Whitecaps played a strong game but lost on a last-minute goal to the Columbus crew. What do you make of that loss to the crew? Okay, well, let me just address the uh, the goal there, the, the 1-0 uh, result. And it was it was unbelievable how they uh, they survived in the end. You know, they did a good job, showed good character, but it was, it was from a set play. And it's, you know, the cross comes in, you deal with, with the corner kick. 
but you know as a coach it, it's maddening and you have to you know recognize that it's not just about dealing with the cross that comes in so they cleared the ball and when that happens you're so vulnerable to concede in a goal you have to you know all the players that were in that box in for Vancouver had to have known that unless we have pressure on the ball we need to be marked up and they didn't they didn't have pressure on the ball nobody closed the ball down quick enough which means it's coming straight back in and if it's coming straight back in and you're a defender in that mix and you're not picked up then you're going to you're going to concede goals there's no doubt so you look at a replay of that the ball gets knocked out so i think camilla was trying to get out but he was you could see they were just going to whip it back in there was like seconds left in the game there was like you have to know what you have to read the script of what's going on there and it's it's really about details steve you know it really is about winning at that level it's about details and so you know good pedigreed uh seasoned professional players understand where they are in the game every minute so they know it's getting to the 89th 90th minute it's uh, where a player down, they've got a corner kick. You have to know, you've got to get that right. Ball goes out. It's, it's not about, oh, we've done our job, we've cleared the ball, the danger's gone. Absolutely not. Until you have the ball back or until you have good pressure on the ball that stops that ball coming back in from the wide position, you're, you, should be, you should be on hot coals. You should really be on tender hooks, knowing that we're still under threat here. This is imminent danger, and Vancouver didn't do that. You know, they they uh, they, they were lazy coming out. They didn't pick up their players, and they got caught. It wasn't offside. It was a perfectly good goal. Um, so so that's that. That's that's the negative part. And I, I feel at the same time with Vancouver because I thought they were unlucky to get uh, the player sent off, Salinas. You know, it was it was a clumsy challenge, but it was not. In, it didn't have any intent there. Um, I didn't see him raise his foot. I thought he just turned to the side. He actually looked to protect himself more than anything else. So I could see Tommy Stone was, was uh, aggrieved and angry about that. I don't blame him. He's obviously a stressed coach right now. But uh, I thought Vancouver, you know, you have to say, I mean, without looking to make excuses for them, and I would say the same if it was uh, Toronto FC, but I have to say they have not got much luck. Uh, you know this this year in a number of games it's just unbelievable you know they they missed the penalty they hit the post they had chance after chance against a good team I, I thought Columbus would struggle a little bit after seeing them early doors in the, in the year but they've uh, done a good job it's a decent team but uh, Vancouver again have put in a you know really good shift a good performance I thought uh, they were they were decent enough when, when they went down to 10 men I thought they were unlucky um, the Houston game was a bit different but um, in, in that game I thought they were unlucky I have to say they, um, they deserved more out of it the one thing I, w- I would also say is that uh, Tommy's being tough here you know he's shown his, his strength of character as a coach because he's not playing downfield who's sort of I think in the media he seems to always be in the media he's sort of a blue eyed boy right now in, in, in how they've uh, he's almost branding himself it's always about Terry Dunfield Tommy Stone's been strong there and he's not played him, and there's, uh, I think it's not just about resting him, I think it's an ability thing that what Tommy sees anyway through his eyes, and I was really surprised he came on and took the, uh, the penalty. You know, it's, it's one thing to, to show the character and leadership to say, I'm going to take responsibility, but then there's also the smarts to know, I'm not fresh, I've come on, you know, it's seven minutes I've been on here, there would be other players that would have been much, uh, much better equipped, in my opinion, on a mental and physical level, and technical to have stepped up and t- taken that penalty, uh, Camilla would have been uh, would have been 
my choice. So it just was. It seems to be like Vancouver's season. They just can't seem to um, to get it together right now. Omar Salgado did everything but score in that match, and as a 17-year-old, did not back down against any of the big physical players on the Columbus backline. You've spoken highly of Russell Tybert on a past podcast, and I'm curious what your thoughts are on the potential of Omar Salgado. Yeah, clearly he's got uh, potential. I think he's been well-groomed. He's uh, been, been uh, scouted well. I think a number of teams in the MLS would have, uh, would have wanted him at the right time. Vancouver have gambled to bring him in so young. Um, I, you, you know, you can see the youthfulness in him. At times, he sort of looks like he's lazy. I don't think he necessarily is in his, in his mind. So he needs to, to know how to position and, and run and work at the right times. Um, and he's got to find a way of getting in and around the box where the ball bounces down, where you can be a poacher and score goals. Alan Gordon is a perfect example of that. But that takes experience. I think on the ball, he's shown some glimpses. I thought Martin Nash made a really good point when he was saying about how he's seen him in training and he just you know, is able to rifle balls in from, from distance, but he hasn't quite connected in games. And I think that's, I think that's a good observation by, uh, by Martin Nash there because really... You know, it is about that youthfulness and experience. You know, when you're in, when you're a collegiate coach and you're whether in the NCAA or the CIS, you know, you get players in that are freshmen, and you and they're good enough that they're strong, they're good, and so the expectations are high. You put them in the starting eleven, and they have to, you know, they have to really, really work to keep the same level of play than what they played at before, which is a lower level, and it's not so easy. There is that transitional year. Or two, and generally, you know, your, your your top recruits in university by the time they get to the third year, is they're just unbelievable, and they're top players. And I think it's the same with professional. You know, but a lot of players at the professional level come in with great expectations, and they fail because they're just not quite good enough. They can't keep up with the level. I think Salgado is not that. I think they're going to reap, <clears throat> excuse me, the benefits. You know, in the future for what they're doing now. And this is the last thing I would say about, uh, you know, about Vancouver is, is that, you know, looking at it now, I, I just wonder how they're thinking at the, um, uh, at, at the management level and the office. And I think the fans, it's, you know, it, it, it's going to be very difficult for them to make the playoffs. In my opinion, they're not going to make the playoffs. It's, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm hardly going out on a limb and saying that. So they're not out of the, they're out of the Canadian Championship. So what it really is is recognizing. Even you know, it's coming to terms with the worst case scenario there, the worst situation. It's like Tony Wade, it's you know the old uh, World Cup coach that we had. He always used to you know use a line of um, you know preparing for the worst and hoping for the best. And I think that you know it, it was it was a good line for us. And I think Vancouver need to take that approach now and, and approach for the worst. So let's say they finish bottom of the league. You know, this year it's not the end of the world. Their expectations coming in were, were maybe much higher. They uh, have maybe buckled a little bit on the patience. I think they should have shown more patience with uh, Tater, Dordison, and, and picked the right time for Tommy to have taken over. They haven't done that. No problem. Move on. But uh, but now be patient, you know, and, and give Tommy the chance of this season and next season, and then move on. Because if you're not patient and you, 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 you make mistakes, you know, it's a pressure thing. It's a pressure game. They're all under pressure. They all want to do it for the crowd. The crowd's going to be there. Because nobody, I've said it time and again, when I watch Vancouver, they haven't got thumped, you know, the, uh, the 5-0. You know, they haven't really been in, uh, in situations where they've looked way off the mark. They've been very competitive. They've been exciting. They've got some quality players in the mix there. I think they're on a different level to Toronto FC when Toronto FC started, uh, 
you know, um, five years ago, there was it was always turmoil in in uh, in Toronto. It was uh, it was it was never convincing with their technical staff. Um, and, uh, and some people might even say that now, but I think they, they, they've turned the corner. They just need time too. But with Vancouver, I think that's where it is. Uh, it, it's at, Steve. I, I was a little bit worried when Robert came out the other day in the media and sort of said and sort of was pushing the envelope again with the expectations. And I, I, I think it's a different, it's a different sell. You know, I think if 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 you sell to the players that it's okay, if you sell to the fans, look, this is a, an expansion year. With a first-year team, and uh, and you know, accept that what could be the worst. I think it'll boost the, the, the players. I think it'll boost it, give everybody confidence. There's no expectations at this stage for the rest of the season, and you just work and you just work, work, work for the for the next year. And I think um, you know, everybody will be relaxed to be able to re- relax a little bit because Tommy Stone doesn't look relaxed right now, and I don't blame him. You know, he probably feels for the decision that was made for him to take over the coaching reins, but no need. You know, sort of alleviate that, puncture that pressure, and I think they will um, they will get some results when maybe people thought that they wouldn't. Unlike Toronto FC, Vancouver has not brought in a new designated player thus far during the transfer window, but they did trade for left-back Jordan Harvey from the Philadelphia Union. I'm wondering how you, um, how you thought Harvey played in his first match, which was uh, Vancouver's two nothing loss to the Colorado Rapids on Saturday. Yeah, I thought uh, Vancouver a little bit off the pace there. I thought they uh, they hung in there. They uh, did the same old thing. Was competitive. I think the Harvey it's his first game. He hasn't even been to Vancouver. I thought he showed in the defending aspect. You know, the couple of one v ones he did. He, he showed that he's uh, it's first and foremost he's a defender and he's good at it. So I think that's a positive for him. I think it's. Uh, They've, they've probably scouted him well and, and known that first and foremost he needs to be a good, solid, strong defender. It now frees up uh, Rashard to go in, in the centre center of the back. And uh, I think that's positive. I mean, you know, time will tell with it, but it, it looks, you know, a, a, a decent decision from their perspective. I thought the, the performance wasn't quite as good, uh, but then they have, uh, you know, again, some key players missing. I thought Camillo, or Camillo was, uh, was terrific in both games. I thought he's... Um, you know, he just can't quite seem to uh, to find the right spot of the net where he can, um, you know, avoid the goalkeeper and hit the back of the net because um, you know he's electric at times. He really uh, creates some great stuff. He looks exciting, but um, you know, with the DPS, I think Vancouver should uh, be very careful what they do. They shouldn't panic um, at this stage of the season. It's their first year. It's about um, keeping calm and uh, not buckling with the pressure. Harvey, it's interesting, is traded to them from the Philadelphia Union, who have basically made the jump from the bottom of the table in their first year to the top in their second. Do you think Philadelphia pl- provides sort of a good model for what Vancouver should be looking at as they move forward? Yeah, and it's uh, Peter Novak as well. It's the, the coach there, and Tommy Stone knows him well. So, you know, I, I would say absolutely, Steve, it's a good point. I think there's a benchmark there, and not just with uh, Novak and the, uh, and the players in Philadelphia, but the ownership. You know, I think they've... Um, uh, they've just settled in there, you know. Seattle have been sort of the opposite. Seattle from the get-go put pressure on um, on all their players, on on everybody. But I don't think that's necessarily the model to to to, um, to follow all the time. Generally, um, teams that are patient and are confident and show that they're confident by how they manage um, problems, by how they manage uh, their resources, their human resources, the players and the coaches. 
um, are the ones that, um, that, that in the end come through and have sustained success. If you force the issue, if you force it too quickly, you make mistakes, you panic, and um, I think that might have been done this year with Vancouver, but it's not it's not as significant now. They've got a good man at the helm in Tommy Sohn. They just need to show faith, and they need to, uh, yeah, as you said, uh, maybe look at what uh, Philadelphia have done this year as their inspiration. Well, on to happier news. I'm pleased to announce that you'll be making your return to the pitch as a player this summer in a charity match on August 20th at Lamport Stadium in Toronto for Athletes for Africa's Rock the Pitch Tournament. In addition, in addition to asking you how far along you are in your training towards getting back to match fitness, I'd like to end this episode of the Paul James on Soccer podcast by having you talk a little bit about this charity event and how people can get involved as both sponsors and players. Yes, well, I think it's uh, you know it's a it's a great um, it's a great event. Uh, it's the third year. It's uh, to raise money for for athletes in in Africa. I believe Uganda and Sudan have been uh, and the Congo have been um, you know some of the recipients of the uh, of the great work that uh, Adrian Bradbury has done for uh, athletes uh, uh, in for Africa. And uh, you know, so I'm, I, I wasn't involved last year. I was out of town. I was down in Florida, but um, but the year before, in that first year, I was. It's a great event. There's some uh, great uh, personalities out there from uh, from the media, uh, from the entertainment uh, industry, and from uh, from the sporting background. So it's a great fundraising activity. I would say that uh, you know, again, for people to Google, you know, athletes for Africa and um, and uh, look for Adrian Bradbury. They can, and actually also on uh, Red Nation Online. Uh, .ca, they could uh, find information there for sure, and it's a it's a good event. You know, I'm I'm um, I'm older now, so I try to diffuse the uh, the competitive nature that's uh, that's been part and parcel of me, Steve, for uh, for, for my uh, over my lifetime, both as a coach and as a player. Almost too competitive, some people say, but um, it was uh, part of my success. But in these kind of events, I try to diffuse it, so I'm trying not to train with uh, thinking that I'm training for the actual tournament. So I just train now to uh, keep fit and healthy. If you have questions that you'd like Paul to address, please send your email to pauljames at rednationonline.ca.